This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, I've got Dr. Hugh Ross on the other line. We're going to be talking about creation science, how science points us to Christ, points us to the God, the creator of all things. It's going to be an exciting program. You stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into this program today. We've got an exciting episode for you. We're going to be talking about the sciences. Before I dive into that, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal or a reoccurring gift on Patreon. As low as 5 bucks a month, you'll get access to extra content on Patreon, like the book club that we're doing. We're going through the screw tape letters right now. Uh, we rotate through book club. We do live Q&As, do all kinds of different stuff. So check out some of the extra content on Patreon. Patreon. Uh, anyway, without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to my partner in crime, Michael Roundtree, all the way over in Oklahoma. Uh, I say all the way as if three hours is all that far. Michael, how are you doing? I am doing well over here in Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, excited about this show. Uh, just finished this weekend, uh, Dr. Ross's book, Improbable Planet. And, uh, and man, what, what a book, Dr. Ross. And, and, uh, and what a privilege to have you on the show. Uh, if you guys uh, don't know Dr. Ross, uh, it, well, I'm going to give him an opportunity to tell you about himself, but I'll just give you this little preview. He is an astrophysicist and a theologian at the same time. How about that? I bet you you might be the only one of those on the planet right now, Dr. Ross. Uh, those astrologians <laughs> are quite rare. Astrologians. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Ross, could you tell us a little bit about yourself before we uh, we jump into this uh, episode talking all things God and science. Sure. Well, my doctoral degree is in astrophysics, and I did postdoctoral research on quasars and galaxies at the California Institute of Technology. And uh, while there, I've actually found a Bible-believing church, and so I got involved. They put me on the pastoral staff to train people how to evangelize individuals in the STEM careers: science, technology, engineering, math, and uh, medicine. And it was that church that helped me launch Reasons to Believe 37 years ago. So I'm the founder of Reasons to Believe. And uh, I don't have a doctoral degree in theology, but I do teach theology at three different seminaries. And I've been a pastor for the past 46 years of a church between Caltech, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and the headquarters of the Skeptic Society. Okay. Well, I'm going to call you a theologian anyway, because I think that's pretty (laughs) impressive. So so you... You are an astrophysicist, though. Uh, help us understand. What does that mean? Most of us are just kind of like, well, that deals with outer space. Uh, I mean, is that pretty much it? Just help us understand. Yeah, we, we apply physics to uh, what we see in the universe. 
So, uh, you know, my research interests were trying to understand the beginning of the universe, the history of the universe, uh, what makes the universe tick, uh, what has to be fine-tuned within the universe in order to get life in the universe, and in particular, what about planet Earth, and what's the purpose of the universe? What purpose does it serve? Excellent. Well, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot when we talk about theology and science and those kinds of intersections is that there's kind of a presupposition, uh, sometimes in the church and sometimes in the world, that these things are somehow mutually exclusive. Would you speak into that for us for a second? Uh, Does science and religion inherently contradict one another uh, from a Christian perspective? Well, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I really didn't get to know Christians well enough to have a spiritual conversation with one until I was 27 years of age. That happened when I showed up at Caltech, and I met Christians in the astronomy department there. Uh, But I got into astronomy when I was seven years of age, and I was reading four or five books on astronomy a week during my growing up years. And that's what persuaded me the universe has a beginning. And if the universe has a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner, So starting at age 17, I went on a quest to find that beginner and discovered uh, that the philosophers didn't have it right. Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and all the other isms didn't have it right. But finally, I picked up a Bible and said, this is a perfect fit. Not only does the Bible accurately describe all the science it addresses, hundreds of times it actually predicts future scientific discoveries and always got the prediction correct. And I said, the only possible explanation This book, the Bible, must be inspired by the one that created the universe and designed it for our benefit. Okay, that's fascinating. I actually would love to pause on that for a moment. When you say the Bible predicted, I don't know if you said hundreds, hundreds or lots of future scientific discoveries, could you list off a few of them for us? Well, for example, I started on page one. Uh, I noted that uh, the first uh, account of creation perfectly follows the scientific method. I was naive at the time. I wasn't aware where the scientific method came from. Uh, But using that scientific method, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth, interpreting the six days of creation from that point of view and also recognizing the initial conditions as dark on the surface of the waters. Water exists everywhere on the surface. The Earth is empty of life and fit for life. I began to make my way through the events of the creation days and discovered it describes 10 events. All are correctly described. All are in the correct chronological sequence. And the Bible also correctly described the four initial conditions of planet Earth. And the best I found outside of the Bible was the Enuma Elisha, the Babylonians, which got two to 14 right. The Bible is the only one that got a perfect score. And, of course, the order of these events was not known uh, to Moses uh, when he was inspired to write it. Uh, That scientific knowledge didn't come until the 20th century. That's interesting. Could you you maybe speak into this idea, though, that uh, the people in the first century, or I say first century if I'm speaking of, you know, the apostles, but uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, right? You got Moses, you've got Isaiah, you've got Jeremiah, you've got Ezekiel. They're writing um, with a kind of cosmology that represents the worldview of their day. Um, there at times, it seems as if, you know, there are people today who point to verses of the Bible that, hey, look, there's a, there's a flat earth, there's four corners of the earth Ezekiel's right, talking about, right? right? So, so what, do you, what do you do with uh, the kind of sections of scripture that look like they're speaking to a cosmology of an ancient Near Eastern person 
uh, that doesn't seem to fit within the cosmology and the understanding that we have today. Some people would look at that and they would say, hey, look, the Bible has scientific errors in them because they're writing from a broken cosmology. uh, And if the Bible's really inerrant, it can't get any of those things wrong. Uh, on the right. front end, I am an inerrantist, whatever you want to do with that. Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll pick on me. I don't know. Uh, I'm not really sure where you land on this one, but could you weigh into that for us? Well, I also believe in a biblical inerrancy. In fact, I require all of our staff people with reasons to believe to adhere to all the affirmations and denials of the International Council of Biblical uh, Inerrancy. And uh, three months ago, I just finished a book at Center Editorial Department now on dual revelation. And so there's a chapter there. What did the ancients really believe about cosmology? And what's happening is 21st century theologians are imposing a cosmology on these ancient Near Eastern people that nobody in the ancient Near East believed. Mm. So there's this idea, for example, they all believed in a flat earth. and There was a metal dome above the flat earth uh, with stars on the inside of the dome, holes in the uh, dome where rain would come through. And uh, none of the ancients believed that. And the problem is people are not distinguishing between uh, the fantasy literature and the literature that's actually referring to geography, science, and history. It'd be akin to, say, archaeologists 1,500 years from now discovering films and uh, film cases in Hollywood on the Flintstones and concluding that people in the 20th century actually believed uh, that dinosaurs cohabited with human beings and they tamed them to do uh, different uh, quarry work. Uh, You know, that again, that's fantasy literature. And so it turns out that all the ancient peoples, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Chinese, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, they all knew that the world was spherical. They all knew that uh, the sun uh, was much more distant and far bigger than the earth. They actually believed in a heliocentric theory uh, for the earth. The reason why people get this idea that they were geocentrists They didn't have algebra. Now, without algebra, you can't predict the future positions of planets from a sun-centered position, but you can do it from an earth-centered position. And in mathematics, they tell you it doesn't matter where you do your calculations from. You can make things work. You can make it work from Jupiter. You can make it work from the earth. You can make it work from the sun. But if you don't have algebra, it's got to be earth-centered. And so people like Ptolemy really weren't convinced uh, that the world uh, was that the solar system was geocentric, but it's all he could do to make the math work. So yeah, and uh, there's several books written on what's called the flat Earth uh, uh, fantasy, basically making the point you don't see claims that the ancients believed in a flat Earth until the 17th century, particularly the 18th century. So actually invented just a few centuries ago. None of the ancients knew that, and I actually explain how easy it is to determine that the Earth is spherical. Solar eclipses, uh, lunar eclipses, uh, the shadows of obelisks, uh, looking at the constellations, these are all really easy ways not only to determine that the Earth is spherical, uh, but to determine the diameter of the Earth. The ancients knew the diameter to 1% precision. Whoa. Wow. Okay, so I'd like to jump into some of the content of your book, but this is not just something you talk about in Probable, in Improbable Planet, but in uh, just lots of your writings. But the anthropic principle, could you define that for us? And, and one of the things you talk about too is that it sounds like people are kind of straying away from even the anthropic principle, principle and moving toward the prebiotic principle. So maybe you could talk to us about both of those, what they are and why they matter for us. 
Yeah, the anthropic principle uh, goes back about 50 or 60 years when astronomers and physicists said, if you want to have humans in the universe, uh, hundreds of features of the universe and the laws of physics must be exceptionally fine-tuned to allow for the existence of humans. So they concluded the universe was made, it was designed uh, for the entry of human beings. And I got 50 books uh, in my office here on the anthropic principle. All but two of them are written by people that are not believers. And the one thing they all share in wow. common, the evidence for this fine-tuned design is overwhelming. And it gets more overwhelming with every year that goes by. In fact, when I speak about this anthropic fine-tuning in university campuses, I show the students and professors the evidence is getting at least a thousand times stronger every month. So I tell what? the skeptics, if you're not convinced today, wait one month, see what happens. What? Okay, so, yeah. and then the prebiotic principle is is basically well, the, the same thing as the anthropic, but... Uh, how close is it to the probiotic principle? Uh, that's really what I'm, I'm, I'm curious about. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, not quite. <laughs> not quite, okay. So the prebiotic Sounds similar, not related. It's generated by astronomers who are disturbed about the theological implications of the anthropic yes. principle. So they said, oh, it's fine-tuned to make possible the building blocks of life molecules. And so, yeah, there again, you see lots of fine-tuning, but it, what, what they fail to recognize, the fine-tuning to get the building blocks of life molecules uh, is far less than the fine-tuning you need to get a bacterium. And to get plants and animals, you need way more fine-tuning than you do for a bacterium. To get humans, it's orders and orders of magnitude greater than what you need to get plants and animals. And where you see them, that I just put out a book called Design to the Core, or make the point where you see the greatest exponentiation in the evidence for fine-tuned design. So when you put it into the context, what does the universe, our galaxy, and the Earth need to look like in order for billions of human beings to be redeemed from their sin and evil? And this, I would argue, is a biblical principle. The Bible repeatedly states that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything at all, which implies that everything that God creates is designed to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a relatively short period of time. That's fascinating. Uh, could, could you walk us maybe through some of those different categories that you lay out in your book that are actual necessary preconditions that have to be fine-tuned to a specific way that would that would create human life, not create human life, but would allow human life to be sustainable on Earth? Sure. Well, one that you'll see in my latest book, Designed to the Core, uh, let me see. I don't have it here, uh, but it just got released. And I talk about how if you want to have life on a planet, it's crucial that that planet arise from two rocky planets colliding with one another, which heats up the core of the Earth, turning its liquid iron, uh, its iron in its core to a liquid state. And uh, you get a debris cloud that winds up coalescing to make the moon but the moon's origin is also hot. So the moon starts off uh, with a hot liquid iron core. And because the two bodies start off really close together, uh, the tidal forces that each body exerts on one another circulates that liquid iron in both bodies, which means you get a coupled magnetosphere. And only with a coupled magnetosphere do you have sufficient protection to prevent the early sun from sputtering away 100% of Earth's water and 100% of its atmosphere. And this is a condition, a habitability condition, 
that would apply to every planet in the universe. The only way you're going to have light is it forms exactly like the Earth-Moon system formed with exactly the same composition and exactly the same dynamical history. We, we did an episode recently on aliens where that was actually one of the arguments uh, that theologians have posed to say that aliens can't possibly exist because the the impossibility for there to be another Earth, just mathematically, within any galaxy that we have any knowledge of, like it would have to be so far away by the time they traveled here like they'd all be dead. Um, so it, it was uh, it was one of those one of those interesting again mathematical quandaries. I, I suppose is it is it Gary Bates that we had on the show, Michael? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah uh, Dr. Gary Bates, who I think he actually pulled material from the anthropic principle to make his case. Uh, Michael, did I cut you off just now? Oh yes, but you know, Josh, I'm used to it. So here's the thing, man. Really okay. You're not I, muting I, your mic, so I literally pulled down your side sound bar. So I don't know yeah. when you're talking. <laughs> you know what, Josh? I choose to be offended. No, uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Ross, you, you talked about just the impossible circumstances surrounding just the formation of an Earth-like planet, and you talked a little bit about the Moon. And my understanding of the Moon is it is way bigger than any moon typical uh, there there are unique properties of our moon relative to moons that that revolve around right. a normal that orbit around other planets yeah. and, and uh, here's just one of the quotes from your book and i wonder if you could unpack it for us you say the conditions under which the moon formed seem so unlikely from a naturalistic worldview as to defy credibility and we're talking about the moon that because of the way it regulates the tides, because of, I don't know, a million things you know that I don't, is necessary for life on Earth. The fact of its very existence defies credibility, if only from a naturalistic standpoint. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, our moon, relative to the size and mass of our planet, is 55 times bigger than the moon of any other planet. So, yeah, the ratio of the moon's mass to the Earth's mass is enormous, and it takes that to stabilize the tilt of Earth's rotation axis. It takes that to slow down Earth's rotation rate from two hours a day to 24 hours a day. Those are just two of 20 different fine-tuned features of the moon that are crucial to make life possible here on planet Earth. So you don't have a body like the moon, uh, you're in trouble. And I do cite an improbable planet, uh, a number of lunar origin researchers. And they basically came up with all this insight in how the moon formed. Uh, but they looked at it and said, we've got way too much design here. And so they commissioned these researchers to redo all their lunar formation models with a goal of lowering the degree of design that's necessary to make life possible on Earth. Uh, the papers got published in the British journal Nature, and they wound up with way more design than what they started with. <laughs> and it was Tim Elliott, uh, one of the researchers who commented, that all this extra design is causing us philosophical disquiet. So we'll see that quote in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So if the science doesn't work in your favor, just change the model and hope that works out. I guess. Well, they tried changing the model and realized, wait a minute, we underestimated the design. There's way more design there. And they're discovering more design uh, in the earth moon system literally with every few months that goes by. I just gave you the latest one. You have to have a coupled magnetosphere. The probability wow. of that happening by chance is utterly remote. So yeah, we are or- orbiting the one star. That's the other thing. Our star is special. We've been scouring uh, our galaxy and, and the Andromeda galaxy trying to find a star 
that is a luminosity stability as stable as our star the sun? Well, one that places second is five times more unstable than our star the sun. And we need that stability for human civilization. So we're orbiting a unique star. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so talk to us about the size of the universe. I mean, Stephen Hawking uh, talks about just this massive, massive universe seems to imply that it's a bunch of wasted space. Uh, of course, Stephen Hawking has a bunch of things that we would all disagree with, uh, although he was obviously very brilliant in other ways. But um, you say in your book that the universe is actually not a waste of space, but that we actually need it all. We need how it all. It be, right. How can it be that for life to exist on this tiny speck of dust in the universe that we needed galaxies, you know, gazillions of light years away to exist that we're never even going to see or even know about. How do they contribute to life here? Well, the observable universe contains an estimated 2 trillion galaxies, where each of those galaxies contains a couple of hundred billion stars. So yeah, there's lots of stars in the universe. But if you add up all those stars and planets and gas clouds, that makes up just 0.27% of the totality of the universe. The universe is predominantly made up of dark matter and dark energy. However, if you take the total mass of the universe and make it ever so slightly smaller than what we observe, uh, then the universe during its first four minutes will, will fuse such a small part of the primordial hydrogen to helium that future stars will be unable to make elements heavier than helium. And if all you've got is hydrogen and helium in the universe, that makes it real easy to pass a chemistry class, but you're not going to get life. There'll be no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen. You run into another dilemma if you make the universe very slightly more massive. Now you produce so much helium from the primordial hydrogen during the first four minutes of cosmic existence that the future stars very quickly convert all the matter uh, that is less than iron into elements that are heavier than iron. And once again, no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen. If you want life, the universe has to be incredibly fine-tuned in its total mass. It also has to be fine-tuned in its age. It also has to be fine-tuned in its size. Otherwise, no life anywhere, anytime in the universe. Hey, could you talk to us a little bit about the conf confluence of habitable zones? Um, you talk about the chances of all these things just being just right so that, again, right. human life can exist, that kind of thing. Could you, could you speak into that a little bit more? Well, NASA, if you go on their website, they'll talk about the liquid water habitable zone. Uh, and that's the zone relative to the host star where a planet could be orbiting where you might have the temperature suitable for liquid water to possibly appear on the surface. And they say with that criterion, uh, there could be 40 billion habitable planets in our Milky Way galaxy alone. The problem with that is uh, we know of many more habitable zones than just the liquid water habitable zone. The first one discovered beyond water was the ultraviolet habitable zone. Uh, because if you got too much ultraviolet radiation, that kills all life on the planet. But if you got too little, certain critical biochemical reactions for light to be possible won't run. And so the ultraviolet radiation from the star must be fine-tuned on the surface of the planet. Uh, which means that the only habitable planets are those that simultaneously reside in the liquid water habitable zone as well as the ultraviolet habitable zone. And uh, what you'll see in my latest book, Design to the Core, 
there are 14 known planetary habitable zones. Improbable planet, I talk about 11. We've discovered three since Improbable planet came out. And about once a year, we add a new one to the list. Uh, but for a planet to be truly habitable, it must simultaneously reside in all 14 known habitable zones. And, you know, we've now found 5,000 planets outside of our solar system where we've been able to measure their characteristics with some precision. Uh, none of those planets even reside in three of the known, 14 known habitable zones. The only one that resides in three is the same one that resides in 14. And you get one guess as to which planet that is. Wow. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that planet as we zoom in from that astronomical view down to planet Earth specifically. Uh, one of the things you talk about is these mass uh, extinction and mass speciation events where it's like almost everything goes away and then suddenly diverse and complex life forms come all at once. And you talk about how these multiple extinctions and I think you call it speciations, if I'm right, right. that these right. multiple iterations had to happen to prepare the way for human life. Can you right. talk about that? Right. No, that's a good point. I mean, when I debate evolutionary biologists, they just want to stick with the genetics and the paleontology. And I say, well, the physics of the sun is a big factor you must take into account. So they're mistaken in thinking that the sun's luminosity doesn't change with time. Uh, the sun today is 23% brighter than it was when God created the first life on planet Earth. And life can only tolerate about a 1% change without all life going extinct. And so what I write about an improbable planet is how the creator uh, will be removing life wholesale, 50 to 75, even 95% of all species of life from planet Earth, and then quickly replace that with millions of new species that are more efficient at drawing greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as our sun gets gradually brighter and brighter and brighter, the creator will change the life that's on planet Earth so that that life is consistently drawing just the right amount of greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun gets brighter, Earth's atmosphere becomes progressively less and less efficient in its ability to trap heat. And that explains why for the past 3.8 billion years, Earth's surface temperature has been optimal for life. So if you get out of sync with the changing physics of the sun, you're in trouble. And you actually see this in Psalm 104, the longest of the creation psalms where it says the property of all life to die off, verse 29, verse 30. So God recreates and renews the face of the earth. And so he removes life from planet earth and replaces it with new life uh, that is exactly able to pull out just the right greenhouse gases to keep the temperature on the surface of the earth optimal for life. And we humans are the beneficiary because that long history of our planet being packed with life. And that's the message you see in Psalm 104. God packs our planet with as much life as possible and as diverse as possible and as long as possible. So when we come on the scene, we got 76 plus quadrillion tons of biodeposits that we can use to launch and sustain global civilization and use that civilization to take the good news of salvation to all the people groups of the world in thousands of years, not millions or billions of years.
It, this is interesting, and it seems like you've you've touched on it a couple of times. You've you've hinted at kind of an older Earth creation. We had Dr. Ken Keithley come on recently uh, and give a case for old Earth creationism. We don't necessarily need to rehash the whole episode, uh, but I would be curious. Uh, could you give us the cliff notes of why you believe? Sure. Hey, I'm a, I'm an old Earth creationist guy. Well, I didn't really get to know a Christian to have a serious conversation about Christianity until I was 27, but I became a Christian age 19 through signing my name in the back of uh, a Gideon uh, Bible. And uh, yeah, where were we? Excuse me. What was the question again? Oh, the question was just uh, uh, old earth creationism. Why, why earth do you creationism. stand there? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't meet anyone who thought that the Bible was young earth until nine years after I'd been a Christian. It happened when I came to the U.S. from Canada. But at age 17, I picked up uh, the Bible and saw that there were these days of creation. And the first six days end with an evening morning phrase. Evening was, morning was, day three, four, five, etc. And I wasn't sure what those words meant in the original Hebrew, but I knew at a minimum it was telling us, each day is a definite start time and a definite end time. I expected to see an evening morning phrase for day seven. It's not there. There is no evening morning phrase for day seven. And you've got two passages, Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, that tell us we're still in God's seventh day. So the reason why there's no evening morning for the seventh day, we're still in the seventh day. And when I saw that, it answered for me an enigma that bothered me since I was 11 years of age. I mean, my parents uh, bought this, our family, this big, thick book in evolutionary biology. I was the only one that read it. I remember telling my parents, the numbers don't add up. We have all these phyla and classes and orders appearing before humanity, and none of that happens after humanity. When I read Genesis, I said, here's the answer. The reason why we see it before humanity, those are the six days that God creates. The reason we don't see it now, God's at rest from his work of creation. That explains why Sony biologists say, when I do our research, we see no evidence for God's miraculous intervention. They're looking on the wrong day. If they look on day seven, all they're going to see is natural processes. But if they look previous to day seven, they're going to see the supernatural handiwork of God everywhere. Okay. All right. So while we're talking a little bit about opening chapters of Genesis, I, I do want us to get back into some of these fine-tuning arguments, have some uh, conversation about geological, chemical, biological pro processes. But before we jump back into that, I want to camp out in Genesis for just a moment. And this is a sample of a question that I've seen pop up, similar questions in the chat. We know that you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. You've also right. come against evolution and evolutionary right. theory as it's purported today, uh, the naturalistic processes, macroevolution sort of thing. So, uh, but with that, people are asking questions about Adam and Eve. And I'll just, uh, I'll ask this one. This is from Ryan, Ryan Paris. He says, Remnant Radio, you will get, uh, he's asking about number one, I want you to ask, were Adam and Eve specifically created? Number two, was there human death before sin? So um, those are the two questions that seem to be popping up in one form or another. Uh, so I'll ask it one more time so you don't, uh, don't forget them. Uh, were Adam and Eve specifically created? That was the first one. And then human death before sin, did it exist? So yeah. starting with Adam and Eve. I think that's specially yeah. created, not specifically created, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. No, uh, yeah. my colleague Fazal Rana, our staff our chemist, and I, we wrote a book called Who is Adam? Where we go into detail on the origin of humanity, basically making the point that science sustains the biblical statement that all humans on planet Earth are descended from one man and one woman that God specially created only a few Amen. tens of thousands of years ago. Genesis 2 gives us a rough date because he tells us that God created Adam and Eve where four named rivers come together. Those four rivers come together in the southeast part of the Persian Gulf, which today is 200 feet below sea level. But during the last ice age, it would have been above sea level. So that's the date for Adam and Eve sometime during the last ice age. Uh, but that's relatively recent compared to the age of the earth and the age uh, of the uh, universe. And uh, the second question was? Uh, the second uh, second question was oh, about death, death question, and yeah. sin. Uh, yes, right. did human death exist before sin entered the world? Well, the two texts that deal with that specifically is uh, Romans 5, 12 through 19, and 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 21, and 22. And uh, four times you see in those texts uh, that what happened when Adam sinned was the initiation of human death. It's not saying that all life died. I mean, if you look at Romans 5.12, it says death through sin because of Adam's offense was visited upon all people. It doesn't say all life. It says all people. And the only species of life on planet Earth that's capable of sin is we human beings. So Paul is being very careful in both 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 to tell us Adam's sin brought human death uh, for the first time. It didn't necessarily bring plant and animal death or microbial death. I mean, when Adam and Eve were running around in the Garden of Eden before they fell, I'm sure they stepped on a microbe or two. So, so uh, spiders died in, in, in the garden and in the age to come. They'll die. They picked fruit off of trees. The, the fruit died. Well, so there's some kind the of death. Yeah, because I make the point that Christianity is a two-creation model. God creates the universe with certain laws of physics that guarantee uh, that everything decays. Uh, you know, if you've got thermodynamics, electromagnetism, gravity, everything is in a state of decay. But God is using that state of decay to restrain the expression of sin. You see that in Genesis 3. Because of those laws of physics, the more sin we humans commit, the more work we have to do to undo the damage, <clears throat> the more pain we experience and the more time we waste. And notice our biology works in such a way that none of us enjoys extra work, extra pain, or wasted time. And so that's the creator's tool to motivate us to pursue virtue and abandon evil and the process discover we need help. We don't have the resources within uh, to do what God expects us to do, but God is there to trade his moral perfection for a moral imperfection. That's what the second person of Trinity did in coming to planet Earth 2,000 years ago. Yeah, so let me just ask a, a, a tag-on question to Michael's question, then we'll move on back on to the, the, the fine-tuning of the universe. Uh, I'm curious, how do you engage? Because it sounds like you're, you're talking about ice ages, you're talking about old Earth. You're still pointing a lot to 
I mean, the concrete sciences that we have today, but we have a lot of scientists who are pointing to uh, Neanderthals or pointing to all of these non-human, humanoid-esque uh, creatures who roam the earth, uh, found in caves, uh, you know, bodies are preserved. They don't seem human, but they don't seem to be, uh, you know, a species of chimpanzee. What do you, what do you do uh, kind of bridging that gap? Well, that too is addressed in her book, Who is Adam? And uh, the book I just sent to our editorial team, uh, Dual Revelation, has an update. And that update basically talks about the latest scientific discoveries that tell us that Neanderthals and the Denisovans, their population level never got above uh, 15,000, probably was less than 8,000. And the number of individuals that could reproduce never got higher than 5,000. And that would be typical of the population levels of a Homo erectus, uh, you know, Heidelbergensis, the Australopithecines, the whole set of bipedal primates. And with populations that low, there's no way that these species can evolve. And you see that particularly that the oldest uh, skeletons of Neanderthals 250,000 years ago are the same as the skeletons 45,000 years ago. The DNA is the same. Uh, we don't see any change in the DNA. We don't see any change uh, in the skeletal features. And that's also the case uh, with all the bipedal primates that preceded us. And moreover, every time they discover a new bipedal primate species in the fossil record, it throws the naturalistic model into chaos. It doesn't resolve the model. It makes it more challenging. So, for example, the naturalistic model would predict uh, that the size of the brains of these hominids should gradually increase up to the size that we human beings have. But instead, what you find is that the brain size goes up and down like this. Likewise, the bipedal capability doesn't gradually go up. It goes up and down like this. The only thing where we see a gradual increase over time is a capability of these species to hunt large-bodied bird and mammal species. And... It was running into Ian Tattersall, an atheist physical anthropologist who pointed out to us, notice we have no evidence of bipedal primates uh, previous to human beings on Australia or North America or South America. And when humans came into Australia, they quickly wiped out 94% of the large body bird and mammal species. And hence the Aborigines were unable to get out of the Stone Age. They, they didn't have the animals they needed, uh, but that didn't happen in Africa, Europe, or Asia, because there the animals got exposed to these bipedal primates and were trained over a few million years. When you see a tall bipedal with weapons in its hands, run away, run. don't run towards. After all, it tells us in the book of Job, God designed the birds and mammals to come to us, to relate to us, and serve and please us. But if they're easy to hunt and eat, uh, humans in their sin will basically wipe them out just like we did with the passenger pigeons here in America. You, you'll have to forgive me because ago. my I, I've got a very limited set of skills and they 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 have to do with the books behind me, right? Like the theology is basically what I know. So <laughs> am I right in understanding that you're saying that these these uh, bipedal, I, I, I can't even remember the primates, phrase, primates, primates that you, yeah. you, you spoke of, they lived alongside humanity or they're pre-Adamic? Like, where's the timeline of these things? Because I remember you saying Ice Age is when Second Ice Age is kind of the, the period right. of time, or before the Second Ice Age is the period of time where humanity seems to have emerged. So, so how do we... Yeah. Uh, 
when do these things coexist? Well, the or? most ancient ones date back six and a half million years. The most recent one is only 18,000 years. Hmm. So uh, Homo forensis, so, the Denisovans, and the Neanderthals did overlap human beings, although not by much. The overlap was very tiny, uh, particularly given the low population levels. Uh, and, you know, we humans basically some, supplanted them all. And in terms of their uh, technological capability, we really see, you know, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans are considered the most advanced non-human bipedal primates. But we see nothing in their technological capability that we don't also see in the chimpanzees. Chimpanzees also manufactured uh, single rock tools, just like the Neanderthals did. Nice. Chimpanzees will take advantage of wildfires uh, to try to crack open nuts that they can't unless they roast them. Neanderthals did the same thing. But we have no evidence that Neanderthals had control over fire. And the most compelling evidence for that is that the only evidence we see linking Neanderthals to fire is in the summertime. When wildfires break out, we see no evidence for the wintertime. If they truly had control over fire, you would expect to see it in the winter when they most need it. Okay, Roundtree, uh, okay. you ask three, three questions since I offset the, oh, the order count. It's all good. <laughs> it's real easy to, to piggyback in this episode because all of your answers, Dr. Ross, make me want to ask more questions. Uh, but you're such a wealth of knowledge. We're thankful uh, to, to be interviewing you. Uh, we've started to touch, I think, a little bit on the theory of evolution. I think that was even maybe the source of the question with Adam and Eve. And you come against evolution. Uh, were you saying something? Did I miss? Oh, okay, we I'll just coughed. Going. Okay. Yeah. Um, Josh, could you please not cough? Um, so oh, no, no. That's me. I'm sorry. I he, got asthma. I, I was, oh, it was actually you, you. Hey, Michael, Do- will you please Dr. stop Ross, roasting our guests? You want. You're our distinguished guest. So um, <laughs> I was fascinated by this one quote. This was you quoting Richard Dawkins. And I read Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Of course, the famous evolutionary biologists, evolution all the way. And I couldn't believe that he said this. And of course, I was stunned too by the way you you talked about. I mean, I, I've read different books about evolution uh, from both scientific as well as Christian perspective, and and I've seen Christians trying to say, well, there's a hole in the fossil uh, record here and there. But I hadn't heard this argument. I'm probably just not well read enough to have heard this argument. But this seems like like a nail in the coffin to me. And you talk about how in the Cambrian era, there was this explosion of life all at once. And it, it wasn't just like this gradual development and things got a little bit better and a little bit better, a little bit better. And then suddenly things, you know, started looking a little bit like Josh and then a little better, a little better, like, look like me. And then, sorry, I had to get the dig in there. But um, <laughs> out of Josh. It's scientifically uh, proven that uh, evolved males can grow facial hair. So that's, uh, oh! that's, that's, that's up to you, Michael, <laughs> to figure out. I set myself up. So... Um, but you talk about how in the both the Avalon and the Cambrian explosion, how there was this massive explosion of both diverse and complex life at the same time. And Richard Dawkins re- commenting on this explosion of life, an atheist evolutionist says this, the Cambrian strata of rocks, vintage about 600 million years, are the oldest ones in which we find most of the major invertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution. The very first time they appear, it is as though they were just planted there. 
without any evolutionary history. And I'm like, yes, Dawkins, that's exactly right. It's time for you to convert and become a Christian. Someone did plant it there. But uh, Dr. Ross, so well, here's Dawkins my question. Dawkins said boy. that some four decades ago, uh, you know, in, in his book. Uh, but what has happened since? And I cite all this in both Improbable Planet and Design to the Core, is that all the leading paleontologists that are working on the Avalon and Cameron explosion are now saying the naturalistic model uh, fails. In particular, uh, naturalistic biology uh, says, hey, what drives changes in life is natural selection, mutations, gene exchange, and epigenetics. And they speculated maybe there's a fifth factor we're missing, but they're now saying if there is a fifth factor we're missing, its impact is way below the 1% level. These four mechanisms are predominant. And these four mechanisms generate small changes uh, within uh, a species. And so what you would predict from a naturalistic perspective is that you're going to get through these four mechanisms and increasing proliferation of species. And if you wait long enough, you'll eventually get a proliferation of genera. And if you wait longer, you get a proliferation of family and then orders, classes, and last of all, phyla. The problem with both the Avalon and Cameron explosions, we don't see the proliferation of species first, we see the proliferation of phyla. And the phyla show up all at once and simultaneously. And what they don't cite in their uh, research, uh, but I cite it in my books, is that just before the Avalon explosion, oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere is below 1%. And uh, just at the time of the Avalon explosion, that's the first time you see animals of a decent size, the oxygen content jumps up to 8%. It's a sudden jump from 1% to 8%. That's the minimum oxygen you need in the atmosphere to have large-bodied animals. And they show up immediately. There's no time delay. The Cameron explosion is where it suddenly jumps from 8% to 10%. At the 10% level, you can now have animals with a digestive tract with a circulatory system, a heart, a brain, eyes and ears. And here again, we see all the phyllus showing up simultaneously at the beginning of the Cameron explosion. As James Valentine and Irwin have pointed out, uh, what we're seeing here is the exact opposite of what you would predict from a naturalistic perspective. We're getting the phyla first. We're getting them simultaneously and we're getting them immediately when the physics and chemistry of the planet uh, permits these animals to exist. And all the phyla we see on Earth today and brand new discovery, it's not an improbable planet, but I put it in uh, uh, my new book on dual revelation. They, they, the bryozoa, which they thought came later, about uh, 60 million years later in the fossil record, they've now found fossil parts of the bryozoa that are at the very beginning of the Cameron explosion. So all the phyla of life we see today was present at the Cameron explosion. The other thing we know as we've got now a very good measure of the time duration of the Cambrian explosion. So the beginning of the Cambrian, uh, where you go from the pre-Cambrian to the Cambrian, two sets of radiometric measurements tell us uh, that everything happens within a time window of only 410,000 years or less. And uh, no naturalistic model would predict that things could happen that fast. And frankly, I think with future research, we're going to discover it's considerably less than 410,000 years. Okay, so are the scientists just not talking across the disciplines? I mean, why, if what you're saying is true, I believe what you're saying is true, but 
Why aren't scientists saying, okay, we were wrong. The theists were right. There must be someone fine-tuning this thing. This is all crazy. The, the you know, whole long well, evolutionary especially track. When you we- get the, especially when you get the appearance of these animals at exactly the right diversity and time to prepare the way for the entry of human beings. What these paleontologists are not recognizing, the time window in the history of Earth in which we humans can exist and launch global civilization uh, is very brief. We're talking less than 100,000 years. So you got to get everything in place in that narrow time window where humans can thrive and launch civilization. So you really need the creator to be hyper-aggressive and get everything set as fast as possible. And that's what we're seeing in these mass speciation events and mass extinction events. It's a very aggressive. And you see that theme in Psalm 104. And indeed, it's describing a God that is aggressively uh, creating life on planet Earth, removing just the right life forms and replacing it with just the right life forms. Okay. All right. Well, Josh, I guess well, you're giving I, I me three questions in a row, that so question. I'll, I'll keep going. Yeah, I want, to, I want to hear that the rest of that question that you kind of asked, Michael. You teed up, you know, are they oh, not well, talking I star- across? I started to, I started to ask. Right. Are, well, the, are the scientists happening? Not- yeah, what's no, happening sci- is okay. that... Uh, You've got scientists that are hyper-specialized. I mean, what we do at Reasons to Believe, we bring on scientists that do interdisciplinary research. So we don't just look at paleontology. We look at the genetics. We look at the solar astrophysics. We look at the Earth's geology. We look at what's happening with the moon. We integrate across all the scientific disciplines. We're looking at what you need to get the right biodeposits for human civilization. And it's that integration which reveals the obvious. But if all you do is look at one discipline, you might say, well, we got a problem in paleontology, but maybe the genesis have got this figured out. But if you talk to the geneticists, they get dates for the appearance of these animals that is up to a quarter of a billion years earlier than what the fossil record tells they appear. And from a naturalistic perspective, the genetics has got to match the paleontology. From a Christian biblical perspective, it could match, but it doesn't have to match. And we see plenty of places where it doesn't match. So there's really an abundance of evidence. But what I do point out in um, Improbable Planet, I quote from seven paleontologists who have studied the Avalon and Cameron explosions. And without exception, this is a complete list of all the review papers on it. Without exception, they say, the more we learn about the Cambrian Avalon, the more impossible it becomes to try to sustain a naturalistic, or in their words, a materialistic model uh, for the history of life. And in my wow. new book, uh, I basically cite a few more because I now more and more papers are coming out uh, where they're saying, hey, we got a problem here. We need to face up to it. Uh, okay. Well, I, right, can, Josh, I, I still want to ask, though, because I, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that the Christians are engaging, you know, cross cross science spaces, you know, really cross pollinating within different science fields. But why are the the atheistic uh, uh, scientists still denying the kind of fine tuning reality? Are they just like Michael was asking, are they just not aware of that mm-hmm. cross pollinating science? What, what What's causing them to suppress this? Well, I think it's partly cultural. I mean, uh, I remember attending an origin of life research conference where we got to have meals with all the researchers that were there. And, uh, you know, they would talk to, they realized we were Christians cause it was on our name tag reasons to believe. And uh, they would say, well, I'm an atheist. And I said, well, why are you an atheist? I said, well, I'm a scientist. I must be an atheist. 
I said, well, have you ever actually looked into it? Have you actually studied whether or not there's purpose within the universe, purpose for life originating 3.8 billion years ago? Uh, what about the design? Have you ever thought about the fact you're going to die one day? And uh, how are you re reacting to that? And what I discovered is they're really not atheists. They're default atheists. They're so busy doing their scientific research. In fact, several of them confess to me that they're addicted to their science research. I can fully understand that. I went through that addiction earlier in my career. I mean, you're making all these discoveries. Boy, it really is motivating. And it's all you want to do with your life is just study the science and make these discoveries and solve these problems. Uh, but it's such that a number of these scientists don't take time to focus on the most important issues of life. So one paleontologist I debated, I said, I think you need uh, to take into account the principle of the Sabbath. Take regular time out of your scientific research to focus on the most important issues of life. You know, am I ready to die? What's going to happen to me after I die? Is there a God? Is there purpose? Is there design in the universe? Uh, those are the questions every human being needs to ask. You know, why do I have what looks like a moral code written on my heart? How do I explain the conscience that I seem to be uh, born with? Uh, you know, we need to be spending time dealing with those questions instead of being diverted. Uh, but there's a lot of diversions in the 21st century. The other thing I find interesting, the rise of people who'd identify as atheists or agnostics, it's directly proportional to the rise of urbanization. And it tells us in the book of Job that the birds and the mammals of the wild fields will teach us, they'll instruct us. They'll instruct us about deep, important spiritual lessons. But if you have no contact with those animals, you're not being exposed to those uh, issues. Hmm. And when I travel in rural parts of the world, it's like everybody believes in God. When I go into the big metropolitan cities, that's where I find the atheists. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, question about origin of life. When you touched on that a little bit a moment ago. Uh, this is a quote from Niles Eldridge, a paleontologist, also from your <laughs> book. Uh, I want to read the quote and just kind of get your response as to why this mm -hmm. is such a significant quote. He says, one of the most arresting facts that I've ever learned is that life goes back as far in Earth history as we can possibly trace it. In the very oldest rocks that stand a chance of showing signs of life, we find those signs. What does this do to naturalism? Well, it's basically telling us the origin of life. I mean, I took a course from Carl Sagan when I was at the University of Toronto. Wow. And his model for the origin of life was we have this vast prebiotic soup, basically 100% of the world's oceans packed with these concentrated prebiotics that percolates for a billion years. And out comes a symbol my, microbe from whom we're all uh, descended uh, through natural common descent. Well, we now know we don't have a billion years. The origin of life happens in a geologic instant. And so what Mal Zellwood says is true. When we look at the very oldest permanent rocks on the face of the earth, we look at the oldest evidence for permanent liquid water. We see in that water and in those rocks multiple signatures that microbial life was abundant at that time. So it's basically telling us the origin of life happened in an incredibly brief period of time. The air bar now tells us it must have taken place in a window of time briefer than 5 million years. And uh, so, and no naturalistic model uh, can take a primordial soup and make that happen. Matter of fact, we now know there are no prebiotics on the face of the earth. 
because the, the carbonaceous molecules uh, that are crucial for the origin of life have a higher ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 than the same molecules that don't factor in to organisms. Same thing with sulfur-32, same thing with nitrogen-14. When we look at these carbonaceous molecules on the early earth, 100% of them are postbiotic. None of them are prebiotic. Earth never had a prebiotic soup. So you got no time for the origin of life and no soup. If you got no soup and no time, you do not have a naturalistic model for the origin of life. And we've written a whole book on this, uh, yeah. Origins of Life. Wow. Powerful. Of so course, to us, five million years sounds like millions of years. <laughs> and it is. But uh, in no, evolutionary brief time frame, time. five million is yeah. not long at all. It's only six zeros. So Right. <laughs> the numbers you're dealing with is very small. Josh, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Well, uh, I was just going to say that a lot of these these books, I mean, I, I I pretend to be a smart guy on YouTube. That's what I do for a living. So, um, you know, the, a lot of these facts that are kind of flying over my head. So w when I read this kind of content, is it is it supposed to strike awe in the heart of the person who reads it? I'm curious, like, for the average listener who's here who's like, okay, I don't know anything about nitrogen and how much nitrogen is necessary for life to exist and why our soil is special. Like, I don't, I don't understand. What are we supposed to do with this data point? Like the average Christian, the average right. person who's not a scientist, what would you advise them uh, to know about the sciences? I mean, do, do, does every Christian need to be like deeply scientifically minded and apologetically equipped? Like how would, how would you want us to process this data? Well, I've now written 22 books, and all of my books go through an editorial process uh, where we have editors that basically take the uh, high-level science and get it down the lower shelf. And, uh, you know, for those who really want to understand the science in detail, uh, we give them links to the peer-reviewed papers or right there in our books so they can go and check us out and read it for themselves. But for most people... Uh, they just want that awe expression experience saying, you know, I don't have time to understand all the scientific details. But one thing I do understand is that the design is ubiquitous. In my book, Design to the Core, I say you can look at the universe as a whole, hundreds of features that must be fine-tuned for life to be possible anytime, anywhere in the universe. But if you drop down to the cosmic web, you again get dozens of features where the universe on that size scale must be fine-tuned. Then you go down to our super galaxy cluster, our galaxy cluster, our local group of galaxies, our galaxy. You look at the local arm, the local bubble, the local fluff, our solar system. No matter what size scale you look at, you see this overwhelming case for supernatural design to prepare a planet for human beings. And most lay people, they're satisfied with that. Now, what I hear from people who read it who don't have a science background, they say every chapter is a mind blower. Every chapter is basically mm -hmm. saying, this has got to be the handiwork of God. Amen. Yeah, amen. Well, it, and it seems like there's a hope dimension to it, too, because one of the things you talk about in Improbable Planet is that the scientific research supports that there is, that creation as it is right now is, the word you used, is a launch pad for what is to come the new yes. heavens and the new earth, this perfect home. I don't think you use the language new heavens and new earth there, but that's how I read it. Am right. I understanding you right? And, and how can that be right. that current creation, that even the science supports that it's a launch pad for new creation? 
Right. Now you're really getting at the key point. As I mentioned earlier, Christianity is a two creation model. God creates the universe with all of its laws and physics and its two trillion galaxies to be a tool in God's hand to efficiently and rapidly eradicate all evil and suffering. And once that happens, God no longer has a purpose for the universe. He no longer has a purpose for the laws of thermodynamics or gravity or electromagnetism or even for the space-time dimensions of the universe. And so once evil and suffering are completely eradicated, uh, God takes humans who choose to spend eternity with him into a new creation. And if you read Revelation 21 and 22, it's a realm where the dimensions are different. It's a realm where there's no thermodynamics, no gravity, no electromagnetism, no longer need all that. So when we get into the new creation, nothing will decay, nothing will wear down. And everything we create is not going to need any maintenance. Won't that be wonderful? And that's why you see the Apostle Paul saying, no one can think or imagine how great and wonderful it will be. One thing I've done in a book I've written on this beyond the cosmos is to say, what we see implied in Revelation 21 and 22, time in this creation is linear. We're constrained to a single dimension of time. But the new creation, time will be geometric. Exactly how it will be geometric, we don't know, but we will be moving and operating in at least the equivalent of two independent dimensions of time, which means none of us are going to have to get on a long line to have a private appointment with the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, and, and like Dr. Ross just said, Michael, if, if you get around to reading Revelation 21 and 22, they're really, they're really good chapters of the Bible. I know you're not really interested wow. in eschatology. And in this episode that we're talking about <laughs> creation science, you found somehow a way to sneak eschatology in. And just leave it to Michael Roundtree. He's like, it's not a show until we chase that eschatology squirrel. That's right. Let's talk about Revelation. That's right. Let, let, me, uh, let me ask you this one thing, uh, Dr. Ross. And I'll actually ask Michael the same question. Kind of get a closing thought. What's your, your big takeaway moment for the episode? Something you want people walking away thinking about, meditating on, that kind of thing. Is there sort of walking away from a conversation like this? Michael, I'll start with you, and then we'll, we'll toss it over to Dr. Ross. Yeah, I, th I would say we shouldn't be afraid of science. There's no reason to be afraid of science. God made science. <laughs> and it's uh, the glory of kings to search out. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, the glory of, of kings to search it out. That's Proverbs uh, 25.2 or 26.2. I can't remember. But, uh, but it's actually in us to want to search things out. This is a beautiful thing. And we shouldn't be afraid of scientific discovery. And if what we believe is true, capital T truth, then the more we discover about little t truth, all the truths that are out there in the world of scientific reality, they're just going to point more and more to the capital T truth. And that's precisely what we're discovering is every month there are, a th you heard this at the top of the show, a thousand new discoveries that are making uh, making any alternative theory, any sort of naturalistic theory, increase that much increasingly impossible to believe. I won't say impossible because people believe it, but uh, but my point is we shouldn't be afraid of scientific truth. In fact, uh, we should pursue truth with eyes wide open, and this is actually part of what God has placed into our heart. And at the end of the day, uh, there is not a conflict between science and religion apart from that which I believe is just kind of built into the culture of science and, dare I say, the culture of religion. We, we've built this anti-science religion and this anti-religion science. It actually need not be that way. And so I would just say, just go for it and pursue truth. Uh, 
lowercase t capital or capital letter t pursue truth and just and just let the truth speak for itself of course the scripture is our trumping like uh God breathed truth, but we shouldn't be afraid of scientific truth so, either. So as long as the truth has a T in it, pursue it. That's Michael's walk away, takeaway moment. Thank you Dr. for that. Dr. Ra- I just want to surmise exactly what you said so that people that was good. make sure that the truth has a T in it. Um, Dr. Ross, I'll toss it over to you. What's that kind of takeaway? Well, moment I'll for you? build on that. Mainly when you look at Psalm 19, it's basically saying God has revealed himself through two totally trustworthy books the book of nature and the book of scripture. And so what I share with uh, Christians, don't leave it up to people like Michael to do all the theology. It's so much fun. We all need to be theologians and don't leave it up to professionals like myself to do the science. It's way too much fun. Everybody needs to be a scientist at some level. So immerse yourself in God's two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture and recognize too that the Bible declares God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything. Second uh, Timothy 1.9, the grace of God that we now experience was put into effect before the beginning of time. Or Titus 1.2, the hope we share in Christ was given to us before the beginning of time, which implies everything that God creates is for the purpose of redeeming a huge number of human beings into relationship Amen. with the creator of the universe. And that should be the goal of every one of us, to use God's two books to bring an increasing number of people into relationship with the creator of the universe. Amen. Amen. Hey, And if that's thank- you and you're out there watching this or listening to this or you're driving around, listen to this podcast, wherever you are, we just want to appeal to you to, uh, to listen to the truth that has been presented, the, the lowercase t truth, the capital T truth, the, the truth in the book of nature, the truth in the book of scripture, God is declaring his glory. He declares his glory through the rising of the sun and the stars in the night sky and the animals that fly and swim and run around on the ground and your children and your parents. I mean, God is declaring his glory in creation and he is declaring his glory in scripture in the truth of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who left heaven, came to earth, lived, suffered, died, and rose again for you to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life. But in order to receive it, you have to repent of your sins. You have to trust in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would do that today and that you would tell somebody about it because Romans 10, 9 says that if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and confess in our uh, with our mouth that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So believe it in your heart and then tell somebody And that will be a first step for you on your spiritual journey. I hope you make it. So, guys, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, if you want to consider donating to the show, uh, as Josh mentioned at the top of the show, we're just entirely crowdfunded. We want to keep making shows like this. So you can uh, can take advantage or or you can do that. And also you can see there on the screen, uh, subscribe, hit that like button, share this. And I hope this episode blessed you. God bless you guys and have a great week. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo 
promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.